today I welcome Chris Nichols, Master at Wellington College International School in Bangkok. In this episode, I discuss designing and building a new school, living into the values based on a UK school brand, the differences of international education, plus the appeal of teaching abroad. Chris, you began your teaching career in England. What led you to suddenly take off and work in international education? Before I trained as a teacher, I'd done a few other things. And I did, I lived outside of the UK for five years in my 20s before I trained as a teacher. So I was used to living outside the UK. So that didn't kind of phase me at all. So I was teaching in the UK in a very nice school, Caterham School in Surrey, and everything was going very nicely. I had a young son who was at our school and a wife. And the reason I moved abroad was simply this. Every month, my Barclay card bill would come and it would be like £750. And I would pay off about 250 of it and it would go down to 500 And then the next month it would come in, it'd be 750 again, I'd pay. I looked ahead and I, I did some sums. I couldn't work out how I was going to get rid of this stupid little Barclay card bill of 750 quid. Couldn't get rid of it. And it just made me really sick. I've got a decent job here. I'm I'm earning properly. I've got a family. I need to do better than this. So I looked around and found what turned out to be an excellent job in Singapore. It paid better. I was paid well anyway, to be honest, better than average in the UK, but it paid better and it kind of sorted out my finances. So that was the reason. And people have cost of living crisis problems now, but this is 2003. It was driven because you you had an opportunity to earn more money as opposed to the love of languages, to see the world. That was almost a secondary piece at the time. But I suppose during your decades whilst you've been out there, possibly changed your mind because your transition to international education, you've almost made it your home. Yeah, actually, I've just realised you you asked me that question. It's 20 years ago that I left the UK and really I've been out ever since. I only intended to go for four years. As does everybody. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'll do four years in Singapore, head of English, and then I'll move up to the next level back in the UK. And indeed, you know, I went for jobs, but then another job came up in Tokyo. The only job I really wanted outside of the UK was this one job in Tokyo. And it came up and I got it. So it was just chance. It wasn't a decision that I want to be out of the UK forever. It wasn't a decision that I love foreign. It was just, wow, I've been to Singapore, which is a wonderful place. My son was really happy in Singapore. He was starting to grow up. Tokyo was where I wanted to be because that's where I lived when I was younger. And then I was there for eight years and that was kind of the time had gone by. So clock keeps ticking. So it wasn't a big decision. It was just a, this is great. And then after Tokyo, I was ready to run my own school. And so I looked around the world and just chose something. And it wasn't in the UK because there's not that many new schools opening up in the UK. And I wanted to get something that I could make my own. So it was not a big decision. And how was the transition for you both personally and professionally? Because a lot of people do, they like the adventure of going out there or the lure of gold as such, because they can have a better lifestyle. And it doesn't work out for many, but for lots of people, it's a really great experience being embedded in a new culture. But there's a transition and a friction because you're there to work in a new environment. Plus, as you said, you're bringing up a young family. How was that transition for you? I think I was lucky because I didn't know that much about the world of international schools. And in those days, 20 years ago, there weren't that many. There were the kind of standard expat schools. There were almost none of any other kind. So I happened to find myself in one of the best international schools in the world, Tanglin Trust in Singapore. They knew what they were doing. So that made it comfortable and easy. Singapore is a very comfortable place to live. So I was lucky to have chosen a good school. I never went there with the intention of having an adventure. I'm not really, I didn't really care about adventures. 
I went there because I wanted to do a job. I was a regular teacher and I became a head of department. So I went there to do a job. I went to what I thought was a very professional school and it was. It was a wonderful country. It's easy to live in. They speak English. So it wasn't really difficult at all. I mean, you know, we showed up there. We, I hadn't gone there during the interview process. So I said to my wife, look, this is going to be great. We looked into it. We thought, yeah, why not? So we showed up and I can remember still landing at the airport and thinking, I hope this works out and driving in Singapore. It's a small place, driving to our new house. And it just worked. It wasn't that exciting. It was just the right thing to do. It was not much more difficult than me moving from Surrey to Manchester or somewhere, you know. What is the biggest difference between working in an international school versus a UK independent school? Well, I think it depends on the school at both ends of that. But I think even though many schools in the UK, many independent schools have quite a large number of non-UK students these days. I think the environment here is not the same as that, because although we're a British school, we're surrounded by not Britain. And actually, somebody was saying to me, I'm, I'm doing um, recruitment, staff recruitment at the moment, and I was interviewing a teacher for a post. And she said she teaches um, maths. And she was saying that when she came abroad, it had never occurred to her that the students wouldn't understand the question that talked about a bungalow. Because, you know, maths questions tend to be sort of couched in real life examples. They were good English speakers in Malaysia, but they didn't know the word bungalow. It's not a word that we use in sort of international English, I guess. And she just thought, wow, that's, why don't they know that? And they didn't know semi-detached. And there was all those kind of house words that you expect everybody to know. So you've got the same language, but you've lost a large part of the kind of cultural foundations that underpin it. That's a big difference, which some people find very hard to cope with because they're really embedded in their own culture in a way that they haven't realised. I think that's actually a very big change. When you look at Wellington College, Bangkok, it's a franchise of Wellington College in the UK. And obviously around the world, there's the great British education brand. It seems to be taking over all corners of the globe. How do you remain true to their values, their reason for being in education, but at the same time create an identity for your own school in Bangkok? This is a basic question about almost everything that we do or that I do, because it does absolutely go back to values or it goes back to principles. I mean, I applied for this job all those years ago because I was impressed by the values and the principles that Wellington College in the UK had adopted under Anthony Selden years ago. It was a school that was trying to be the best. It was trying to I don't mean in a competitive way so much as just in trying to do the best thing that could be done. So there was a kind of belief that if we push and push on doing the best education that we can, we will be great and everybody will benefit. So it was almost ideological in a sense. And I bought into that and I still buy into it. So I agree with the principles and therefore I bring them with me here and I just work from them all the time. So I'm not trying to recreate Wellington, England. But I'm using the principles and I'm planting them like seeds and I'm letting them grow in the world of Thailand instead of in the world of England. So I think that's the way that I work is you just ask yourself all the time, what does my principles tell me I should do next? And do you think it's easy to do that and also differentiate, I suppose, because, you know, it's easy to pick up a British brand and put it in a foreign country with investment and it's British education sells quite simple. But then how do you then differentiate? Because obviously all the other British independent schools all kind of adopt similar values and it's still the same kind of educational philosophy. Is there a clear differentiator? 
Or is it really down to you, the teachers, the place to make sure that that difference is, is lived as opposed to promised? Yeah, it's a good question about living it versus promising it, because of course we all promise it. I mean, you know, we'd be fools if we didn't. <laughs> the language is fairly common amongst all good schools. In fact, amongst all schools, whether they're good or not. The differentiator for me is exactly what you said. It's whether we do it or not. It's in the doing. You know, we only opened four and a half years ago. And when we came, before we opened, I was here for the year before. And I went visiting various other schools that were already here just to say hello and sort of introduce myself and introduce the school, create professional friendships. I remember visiting one school and sitting down with the head over a cup of tea. And he said rather aggressively, I don't know why Wellington has bothered to come in. We've already got schools. Don't need another one. Yeah, in many ways, he was right. There are loads of great schools here already. Did we need another one? Probably not. I think we're supplying something that people want, which is the fulfillment of those promises. And I don't think, I'm not going to criticise any other school because there's so fantastic schools here. I don't think the other schools deliver exactly in the same way. So I think we're doing something unique and we're doing something unique in a unique way. So I'm confident that there is a natural differentiator, but you're right when you say it will be difficult to spot from the outside because everybody says the same thing. Everybody says holistic education. Everybody says all round, you know, everybody says all of those things. And we all mean it, but I think we're living it in a very particular way. No, I completely get it. And it is true. I mean, well, I, I kind of speak around this quite a lot, really, because you can almost build Lego sets of schools because you all contain the same protagonists. You know, you have the same stakeholders. Pretty much sure you will have classrooms, facilities, places where the kids can run around, play, dance, do these things. And you all have the same underlying reason for educating these young men and women to go out and make a difference in the world. But the big difference is when you put humans in it. The human element, I think, is the magic ingredient that differentiates every school. And it's really important that the communities believe that. And, and you show it through how you tell your stories and everything else. One thing I've always been impressed with in international schools is one is innovation and the other one is collaboration. I've seen this a lot in all pockets of it, more so than in the UK. I don't think the UK is very collaborative. It's very much as, look, this is my idea. We're going to keep it because it's going to give us an edge. But international schools seem to share a lot more. You seem to have more local associations. You all get together. The heads kind of, whether it's on, on local politics or education laws or change, or by the way, here's a really great piece of teaching. Why do you think that is? I don't think it's the case everywhere, but certainly, I mean, it's definitely the case here. We have very, some of my good friends are the heads of the other schools and we have a very good relationship. I suppose it's partly because if you don't have a good relationship with other schools, you can't do stuff like competition. You know, you've, you've got to be, <laughs> you've got to be able to send your teams out and play against other teams. And uh, there's no natural structure for that. So it has to be created. So we have to interact with each other. And it's just professional courtesy that we would do it well rather than badly. You know, no matter how comfortable the place is, you're isolated to a large extent because you're doing something that the rest of the country doesn't do in a way that the rest of the country doesn't do it. So you know, I think we need each other apart from anything else. And that's probably the biggest reason. Wellington College Bangkok follows the national curriculum for England and it's enhanced to fit your Thai and Asian context. You mentioned earlier about the bungalow, the semi-detached pieces. How do you adapt an English curriculum so it's appropriate for an international context? I have a lot of conversations about curriculums. Most curriculums are, are almost exactly the same. You know, maths is maths, right? How differently can you teach it? Science is science. So if the curriculum is a list of things that you're going to teach, then it's pretty much the same whether it's Russia or, you know, Argentina or, or Thailand. So 
So I don't think in that sense it's particularly problematic to teach a curriculum anywhere. And I have, in, in, not in this job so much, but in different jobs, been through that process of analysing our curriculum, the English one, against the curriculum of the country that I'm in and, you know, seeing what the similarities are, seeing where we interact, seeing what the differences are. And there are very few differences. The slant on a curriculum actually has more to do with the teacher training. And in the UK, I think we have a, people would disagree, but I think we have a very strong, clear teacher training kind of philosophy. UK trained teachers are generally, generally have a common understanding of what's important in modern 21st century education. And that's not the same across the world. That's much more different than curriculums are. We deliver the English curriculum. Almost all of our teachers come from the UK or have UK training, you know, PGC and so forth. So we have that common kind of teaching philosophy. And that means that we can deliver the curriculum easily. But if you're teaching to children, many of whom aren't from the UK, then and you're paying attention to them. You can do nothing except bend like a reed in the wind. You know, you, you have to adapt, otherwise it won't land, you know. There's no point in me saying bungalow, bungalow, bungalow if they don't know what a bungalow is. You know? I've got to figure out what to do next. So it adapts itself naturally. What benefits does an international education have for students' futures? I mean, being more internationally connected must be a great thing, being surrounded and also being in a context where you can learn more about the world. Do you feel that they've got a slight edge with kids that don't leave the country? When I Grew up, I went to one school in my small town in Suffolk. Then I went off to university three hours away, and that was my life. It was insular, I guess. I didn't realise it at the time. My son went to, he started off in Surrey, then he went to school in Singapore, then he went to international school in Tokyo, and then he went to university to Exeter in the UK. So his experience was in some ways very similar to mine because he went to good schools throughout his childhood. And when he landed at university, compared to when I landed at university, I think that's when the difference really shows because his mind was open because it had been necessary to notice different people from different places saying different things. One of his best friends was from Sweden. Another one of his best friends was from India going through school. And so, you know, he knew automatically, well, there's no point in me just saying this because they won't understand it. So we'll communicate in a different way. Those little things become second nature, become first nature. And when you get to university, you realize that you're ready for so much that very comfortable, but very insular upbringing in a, you know, in a small town just has not given you. So I think it just puts you ahead of the game. It kind of normalizes the world, really, to go that you can get on a train, on an aeroplane and just go and visit and explore and see these different places and experience different cultures because it's just normal. Yet for a lot of people that don't, they kind of don't leave the borough, let alone have reached London or Manchester or any of the big cities to have that way. It's just normal just to be somewhere not in England, but you know that England is rooted as home. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. Is international education becoming more relevant, do you feel, in our increasingly interconnected global world? I'm also looking at this as the context from the global workforce is shifting. The hybrid working, we're hearing the full remoters now where they are just demanding that they never, ever set foot in an office. And so what that's done is it's enabled people to go, 
I don't have to stay here and do my job. I can choose any corner of the world. Are you seeing any shift in your region where you're getting people coming out and working for maybe UK companies or American companies? Have you seen that shift and is it more relevant now for international education? don't know that I've seen that much of it, to be honest. And I'm interested in what you said about people demanding that they never set foot in office, because I, I wonder, I, I feel like we're moving back a little bit towards office working. You know, and if somebody demanded that, I might just not want to give them a job. <laughs> it's a really tough time right now. You know, I think we had last year, which was we had no choice but to offer kind of hybrid, being flexible if everyone's transitioning back. And it is, I suppose it depends on the type of company and the roles, because I do feel that people need to be together. It's like the great education on you know test that we had during lockdown. You know, yes, we could educate remotely, but it's definitely not the future of education because people need people. That was a, an experiment that you know, everybody's forgotten about that was done, you know, when I was very young, that people thought, well, the TV, you remember when they used to like wheel the big TV? That was the best thing ever. I mean, <laughs> the VHS going in. <laughs> the TV didn't become a teacher. YouTube is probably the best teacher in the world. Now, but I don't think those things replaced because social connection is so important and being not just socially connected like we are now, but physically in the same space and being able to read people's physical movements and all that kind of stuff. I think more than anything, I think that's what we learned was that you do need that stuff. You do need the personal, you do need the connection. You know, when we designed our school, we designed it to be a a space where people are naturally encouraged to connect in a society of people who are in the same space. So when we came back out of the lockdowns and the the remote learnings, there was this enormous relief more than anything that we could be together. And the children, the young children who, what we called for a while the COVID natives, because they'd been born during COVID and they were now coming into the the pre-nursery, their development was on average so far behind what we had come to expect pre-COVID. I'm not at all convinced that there is a large-scale shift away from physical closeness. Having said that, it's easy for us to see how it can work. And Thailand, you know, if there is going to be, Thailand's a wonderful place to be a digital nomad in, I would have thought. We had one of our designers do that exactly that, just wanted to be in Thailand and left to work remotely. It didn't work out, but we gave it a go. It was one of those, you know, you kind of give an opportunity to go, well, it, it could work based on these boundaries and rules. But the reality is it becomes a bit disconnected. You can't really be immersed in the rest of the 60 people that you're trying to coordinate with and still have your kind of freedom, almost like your holiday lifestyle, and still do a job. It's great seeing all these little tests and trials that we're doing. You mentioned new schools. You mentioned you've got a brand new building. And again, great architects, when they're building these new schools, do build incredible spaces. I know that you opened a new senior school a couple of years ago. What's the reasoning for opening this new school? Well, we opened it because we needed more space. We've opened our school in stages. So four and a half years ago, we opened as a junior school. So from pre-nursery age two up to year six, age 10, 11. And then we just planned for those year sixes the next year to become year sevens. I mean, that's natural. That's all we planned. So they would always be at the top end of the school and now they're year 10s. So we knew that as the school grew, there was always a plan to build this, and then we're just designing the next building and so on and so forth. So that was all part of the inevitable structure. What was great for us was that having inhabited the junior school, which was very well designed initially, we worked and sort of lived in that building for a year, and we watched how it all came about, how people interacted, how the teachers and the students 
and the parents sort of inhabited the space. And then we thought, okay, if we're going to design a senior school, how do we move people on from what we're seeing is happening? So it was a kind of natural, organic process of understanding and then moving forward rather than just throwing the whole thing on all at once. And so was it already fully planned? Because again, you obviously have the seed of an idea, we're going to be this all through school. Um, And you say you have to start it in stages. Um, So you already knew that the shape of the building, the space, did any of it change based on what you knew about how the school adapted with the kids in it then and there? Or did it pretty much stay as it was? No, it changed hugely. So we knew right from the beginning, you know, how many buildings we would have to build and, you know, because we knew how many students we were going to have when we're full, et cetera. So all that was planned out, but we'd never really designed. There was only very vague designs of the senior building. So we did that. I mean, I did that process with the architects myself. So yeah, it developed from seeing what we were doing and then really interesting iterative process between me and the architects, me saying, I don't know how to design a building, but I want this and this and this. And then going, okay, uh, what about this? And me going, I oh, know, what about this? And then me taking them around to see things and, and not so much schools, but things like high-end shopping centres and hotels. Pinching, oh, I really want that. Can I put that thing in my school? And what about that, the way that that staircase goes and that kind of thing? Because all the time we were working out what is the next step for these people in this school. So it was really driven by how our students and how our teachers were operating in the school. It was really interesting. That sounds like an incredibly fun piece of work to take part in, or was it very stressful? Was it more stressful to kind of get it right, or was it enjoyable to go around and go, this is fun, I get to kind of choose this. I didn't realise you could have that shape of kind of facade or that kind of texture coming down on the interiors, or I didn't realise you could grow things. Did you find it more enjoyable and exciting, or was it more stressful? No, I really, it was really enjoyable and really eye-opening. I'm not a, an architect or a designer or anything. I can't really understand three-dimensional space, but it was fascinating to be able to go through that process. And I kept saying, somebody better stop me because I'm going to keep trying to get the best possible thing that I can for the school. And, you know, it's not necessarily the cheapest thing to do. I couldn't stop, you know, looking at every aspect and saying, well, how can this work better for what we're trying to do? How can this work better? So I didn't want to start from, okay, a school is classrooms and corridors and whatever. I mean, you know you need classrooms. Then you wonder, do you? And then you answer, yes, you do. I didn't want to work from what's normal and how can I change it, but rather what's the function and how do I make the building, the space, the environment work as well as it can to fulfill that function. I'm coming out to Bangkok, middle of March. I'm keen to come and obviously have a look around your great school. If I was to walk around, is there one particular piece of the design that you're most proud of that has it just has Chris DNA in it that you look at and go, yeah, I fought for that piece. I'm most proud of that piece. People may not really see it, but is there a detail within the building that you kind of walk past, you see, and you go, yeah, it's still great. Or maybe have a think about it if you don't have it off the top of your head and you can show me when I come. Yeah, there's lots of things that I think I'm really glad that I stood by that. But actually, the whole campus is really beautiful. And it's not just me. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to be egotistical about this. There's a lot of people involved. We've tried to make the whole place an environment that is a nice place to be living the minutes and hours and days of your life. And that's my ideas and the owners of the school and the other teachers. Everybody is together in trying to make sure that that's true. And I think that's true of every square inch of the place. On a question, I ask this of all my guests before we leave. If you were to look into your crystal ball, what would you think the future of education would look like in 2050? Any different? You know, how do you blend technology, skills, buildings? 
knowledge? What things do you think are going to stay? What things are going to change the most? I think that completely depends on how artificial intelligence develops over that course of time. I mean, in a slightly longer period of time, because you're talking about 30, less than 30 years, but over a little bit of a longer period, I think there'll be fundamental change because AI will create fundamental change in a way that nothing else really has. The difference between education today and what I had in the 70s and 80s is, to be honest, not that huge. I mean, we have access to information which is much smoother. We have access to more information, but I don't see that that's a really big change. And, you know, everything else, if you transplanted me from 1979 when I was doing my O-levels or whatever it was, into today, I don't think I'd be that surprised or amazed or anything. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I know everybody says education is broken, but I don't think it is. It needs some attention. Good education does a good job of preparing young people for the complex world of tomorrow. And I think education will basically still be doing that. I think if the pandemic has taught us stuff, one of the things it's taught, as we said a few moments ago, is we do need to be together. We lose from not being together. So if you accept that a school needs to be a place where people are physically together, it's going to be pretty similar. I agree. And I think technology is always, it has to be a lever. You bring it in just like when apps and iPads and everything, you know, everyone put them in classrooms. It didn't make it a better education. It's all down to the teacher using a toolkit. And technology will make things smoother, easier, quicker, faster. They'll allow us to interrogate, look, see, do things in a slightly different way. The people, but just it will never shift. I think we'll fool ourselves if we feel that we will be all stuck on screens doing remote and we'll be taught by robots. Some might, but that'd be their choice. Yeah, I don't want things to change that much. I mean, I want us to be better at what we do. So yeah, incremental change. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.